Welcome to the Enterprise Excellence Podcast, where our purpose is to help create a better future. Learn from our world's experts how to improve your organization sustainably. Learn how to achieve and sustain an excellence journey for yourself, others, and the planet. I'm your host, Brad Jennings, coming to you from Brisbane, Australia. Welcome to episode 17 of the Enterprise Excellence Podcast. I'm so pleased to have John Lindsay as a guest. John helps business leaders develop flow, which he defines as talking about the right things at the right time with the right people taking ownership. John was one of the early adopters of Enterprise Excellence Model, introducing Lean to the insurance business he ran in the early 2000s. In recent times, John has used the concept of joined up to reflect the need to respond to all stakeholders of an organization based on the principles of clarity of purpose, simplicity and consistency to deliver value. Let's get into the episode. John, thank you so much for joining us to share your knowledge and help us create a better future. Thanks very much, Brad. John, I understand your journey into business and enterprise excellence started quite early in your career. Yeah, I, when, when you asked me to reflect um, where it started, I guess one of my first jobs was as an engineering apprentice uh, for, a, for an instrument maker in Luton in the UK. And uh, I was very much involved in sitting with various different departments. And I mean, to cut a long story short, one of them was sitting in next to somebody in the expediting department. And what I learned from that was that when you call up somebody and ask for a spare part, they say something along the lines, Mr. Lindsay, um, I'm afraid we won't be supplying this until you've paid your bill. So what I learned very early on is actually uh, an organization isn't just one department and actually you can do a fantastic job, but there's certain other parts of the organization that had to do their job as well. And I, you know, I, I didn't know what to say. And I learned about, uh, I'll discuss this with my superior and come back to you. It was, it was, it was a good, it was a good learning. Well, that was a baptism of fire from early days. <laughs> so John, where did it pick up from that early experience of not so good practice? Where did you start to gain some new insights? Yeah, well, I, I, w- I went, I did an engineering uh, degree at Cambridge university, which, which is a really solid degree in engineering principles. You don't learn that much about, uh, you know, it's not, you, know, you don't fix motorbikes on that, you know, you're really learning the sort of core principles of engineering and it's fairly um, high level. And I learned that actually that was what I enjoyed doing. So I'm not a brilliant engineer, but I did learn about uh, some of the things, the concepts and the, and the principles behind it. And ended up from that going into uh, project management um, and working overseas, working in places like the Middle East and Saudi Arabia and the Caribbean. Um, so it, it, it was very much, I didn't really think about business as that, as such. It was much more about projects, uh, goals, getting things done. Um, and, and so in fact, my career for the first seven years of my career, I was an engineer and I really didn't understand the full, the full picture of business at all. It was, it was very much just the projects. What, what did you really learn in that time, but like seven years of that, what did it teach you and take further into your career? Well, I worked for a company called uh, Taylor Woodrow, uh, and and at the time, it was one of the two really um, internationally focused engineering contractors. So we worked all over the world, and and they recruited people 
um, who weren't necessarily um, incredibly academic. They, they recruited people who had very balanced uh, characters because you were going to be working on your own in the middle of nowhere. And therefore, one of the things that I learned very quickly is, is you were on your own and you had to make decisions um, and you couldn't rely on head office to do, to do that much. And one of the things that we did in Saudi was we, we actually worked for the Saudi Arabian National Guard and we had about five projects, I think, going on at the same time, almost doing exactly the same thing in different parts of the country. And so each one of them had uh, a site manager and a, a project engineer like me. And it became quite competitive in terms of we all had the same sort of Gantt chart. Uh, and uh, you, you certainly thought about how I can actually get this on time and, and get things done um, as, as fast as I possibly could. And what I realized there was that uh, you couldn't rely on head office to ensure that the materials got to you on, on time. So I had on my wall an enormous chart with the entire schedule of all the materials and um, plotted exactly when we needed to call it forward. And I didn't wait for head office to call it forward. I made sure that it was actually screened. And I actually had visitors who came from, from the UK and visited my site and they said, gosh, that's impressive. And I think that's what you call visual management, isn't it? Visual management and absolute <laughs> ownership. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, learned, I learned that you basically, when you're out in the middle of nowhere, you, you have to make decisions on your own and you can't rely on the organization to make them for you. So it sounds to me, John, like you were put into a leadership position with a lot of responsibility from a young age. Uh, yes, and I think, I think that we recognize that. Uh, and, and I think um, the, the Taylor Woodrow um, recruitment process was designed to, to identify people who were leaders who weren't just technical technically competent and it sort of led to my uh it's a very flat structure uh, civil engineering contracting the world over it's a very flat structure we're on a project and after the project's finished um there's not many people in head office and and it was very clear that i had to think about my career a bit more so but i i didn't know anything about business so um i realized that uh and and i realized i had some 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 strengths and was lucky enough to get to harvard business school well, Harvard, that's not a bad move. Yeah, we, we call it dropping the H-bomb. Uh, and every now and then you can still do it. I, I, I get ribbed a bit by, by my colleagues in, in Australia that I occasionally drop the H-bomb. But, but it, it, it was an amazing experience because you really had, you were taught through the case study method. You were really given uh, a whole raft of experiences of different decisions you had to make. And the key thing that you learned, we knew before, but I think we learned really, really well there was this idea that you had to make a decision. Leadership is about making decisions. Um, it's not about just managing a process. It's actually at the end of it, uh, whatever you see in front of you, what are you going to do? What's the next step? Yeah. And John, from that time at Harvard earlier on in your career, have you seen many of the theories and concepts that you were taught evolve or change or what you learned back then, would you say, is highly applicable now? Uh, that's a really interesting question because um, the, the straight answer is maybe not. Uh, I mean, I think one of my, the, the, one, the one business book that, well, the one business uh, writer that everybody should, should read is a guy called Peter Drucker. 
uh, and he wrote everything that you need to write. You need to write about business concepts, and and they haven't fundamentally changed. And most people who write business books now would acknowledge. I mean, Jim Collins, for example, acknowledges how much Drucker influenced his 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 thinking, and the principles of focus on the customer and focus on innovation and the key processes and all that sort of stuff came from Drucker. And we got taught a lot of that through the case study method. The great thing about the Harvard case study method was we didn't give, get given lots of textbooks. We, we didn't have to academically reference. We were basically given a situation and then asked to basically with the, obviously with the, with the, um, with the, with the professor's guidance to really say, well, how would you make that decision? And we were just encouraged to look at the facts to make decisions rather than, rather than, um, just just go on, go on on our own opinions. So your question about has anything fundamentally changed? I think I've I've learned over the years that we need to make things even simpler. And I think over over two years at the business school, you learn a lot of concepts, some of which are really brilliant. But I've actually fallen back in certainly in the last few years on simpler and simpler concepts because the world is changing so fast that actually you can have some very elegant concepts and you haven't got time to apply them before the world's changed. So I think that's the one thing that's come through in my experience is we get, and a lot of people who do MBAs, who have done MBAs in the last 20 years, I was at Harvard 30 years ago now, um, I think of, of, embrace the complexity and they, 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 they've, they've managed to overcome a lot of complexity. And I'm not sure that's something to be terribly proud of. I think it is actually something about focusing on the simple things, the priorities, the things that are most important. Um, I mean, my, the one person who did really influence me there, uh, and I didn't know who he was until the first, the first lecture. And everybody said, you, you know, you know who we got as, as first up was a guy called Michael Porter. And and I'd never heard of this guy. And he turned up and um, he's a nice enough guy, nice enough guy. But his, his competitive strategy work is simple. It's really simple. And one of the things that he emphasized in his, in his, um, in his course was that too many people focus on the existing competitive uh, environment rather than where it's going to go. And, and, and that's the thing I really got from him. And he, he, he's really emphasized that in the recent past and the stuff he's doing now is looking down the track at future competitive positioning rather than just current, current positioning. Not a bad first lecture to have out. Oh, name drop. <laughs> and John, how you under, I understand there was a project that you got involved with during those uni years, a study that you did across a number of companies. In, in, in the um, project at Harvard, yeah, we had one, well, we had an entrepreneurial um, project, which was fun, which I think um, uh, I, was, I was dying to become a venture capitalist. And I was just, I was a hairy ass engineer. And I suspect that was just at the wrong time. Of the, but I'd love to have uh, 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 been involved uh, more in, in venture capital. But we did work with a company that, that, um, that had a bunch of entrepreneurs who, uh, in fact, the inventor of the hologram on the credit cards was one of the founders and an architect and a couple of other people. And we were asked to, um, well, actually I volunteered because I met one of them socially to actually help with um, uh, putting a business plan together and dropping the H-bomb as it were, dropping the Harvard Business School, we were able to get in to see um, 
they were wanting to develop a, um, a, an architectural product for, for daylighting. So effectively, you could bend the light using holograms. And the technology was really, really not there yet. And it still isn't uh, to this day to, 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 to its full extent. But we were able to go and talk to uh, 3M, um, Polaroid, um, uh, MIT, and, and Pilkington, uh, who were the main, at that time, the leading de developer, developers of, of, of glass technology. And be because we were just students, we were able to go in and talk to all these people and, and, and you know, really help these entrepreneurs establish their business. But the one message we said to the entrepreneurs was your market opportunity is there, but it's going to take you a long time. But we don't see anybody who's really committed. It's an academic exercise for you. And one of the things I've learned from that project is the advice to anybody who's basically running a business, somebody has to believe in it heart and soul. You can't, there's no half measures. You can't half run a business. You've got to be in it or not. Yeah. What's your thoughts behind that, John? What happens when you see that someone's not in it? They're not in it for? Well, if you get, if you get to mid-sized organizations or larger, um, your people notice. Uh, and, and if you haven't got that, that passion, American term, but if you haven't got that, that real belief in what you're doing, it shows. And, 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 and what that then leads to is... Um, a slightly wavering commitment from the team and therefore that and has a, an ongoing slight, slightly wavering commitment from the people who work for the executive team. And so the, it's very easy for, a, for an organisation to become directionless. It sounds to me like you're explaining that the, that like a passion and drive from the leader can influence the people below them and the whole organisation's culture. Uh, Really interesting. I mean, we can we, we can explore that a lot, and maybe have, we haven't got time. But if you don't have leadership, then you can forget about the rest of the organisation. But it's 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 necessary, but not sufficient. And one of the things is, uh, is and Jim Collins talks about it as level five leadership. The idea or, or the Shingo model, with leading with humility, is is that um, organisations that that that, so, that are sustainable that survive have to actually have leadership, which is decisive leadership, but it's not about basically it being um, your ego. It's, it's, it's recognizing that, that the leadership has to empower and encourage uh, people within the, um, within the organization. Um, and and it, I, I learned that um, after I left business school, I, I decided to go into manufacturing. Having been a civil engineer, I decided to go into manufacturing. and went back to the UK and I worked for a company called Courtholds, and um, very long established business. And it was run by a really visionary guy called Chris Hogg at the time. And one of the things that he realized is that you had to, a bit like I was talking about uh, my time in Saudi Arabia, I guess one of the reasons why I joined them, was that you couldn't run the organization from the center. So he was an, the ultimate decentralizing leader. So he basically gave us all P&L. So one of the reasons why I joined is you became an MD of your own business a lot earlier on than in your career than you would normally because you were focused on your own P&L 
and you were responsible for delivering it and you had your effectively you could deal with uh, shared services there were some shared services but you were also empowered to go outside if actually you could get a better service elsewhere and what's more if you didn't make it as a business then you were either sold or you were closed so the, the accountability worked both ways uh, you were successful it was great uh, but it meant that actually the industries that uh, Courtauld's were in was industrial textiles, textiles, man-made fibers. Um, that wasn't a game where you, 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 you spent a lot of time in the middle uh, not making money. You had to make a decision about whether that business was actually something you wanted to have going forward or not. So I learned from that that you, know, you can actually run a business through a very decentralized, in fact, decentralized where possible centralized where absolutely necessary only. So there were some central functions, treasury and a few other things. And, and it worked beautifully. It really did work beautifully in a, in a very turbulent time, the late 80s, early 90s, during that recession that we had in the UK as well as in Australia. Um, we were able to, um, we had tough times, but we had to own it. Well, that um, seemed ahead of its time, that type of decentralized structure. Sir Christopher Hogg. Um, Chris Hogg actually was the first, I think, the first listed company to demerge. He actually split, split the industrial business of paints and fibers, effectively chemicals processing. And there was a massive business of textiles, which was, you know, weaving and knitting and all that sort of stuff. And he split the two and listed them both because he said they were so different in terms of the nature of the business they were they, they actually needed their own their own shareholder structure and they had they needed their own investment structure uh, and he was regarded as at the time a bit of a flake but then a lot of other companies started looking at doing this as well to recognize that you actually had to align your stakeholders your shareholders with the market that you were in and people had different appetites for the different types of markets very visionary. Wow. John, how did your career evolve from there into organizational improvement and what we're going to talk about soon, the joined up concept? Um, well, because of my time at Courtauld's, I ended up at the age of 34 being a managing director of an industrial textiles business in the north of England. It, it had been going for 150 years. And wow. when, you, when you drove up the road um, near Rochdale, um, you you drove we were the only factory which had a, a night shift we were the only the weaving mill with the lights on on the side of the road uh, and we were industrial in industrial textiles rather than garments uh, but we were still a tough business and, and i you know i was the harvard mba i was the new mde i wanted to change the world and it was tough um and um i got really supported by um my divisional MD to um, invest in obviously things like total quality and in uh, what we had in the beginning. We were one of the pioneers in, in using a, a certification called Investors in People, which became very strong in the UK, which was recognizing that we actually had to empower our workforce, train them, acknowledge their skills, but make sure the skills were used because a lot of people throw money at training without actually making sure they were actually used. And the Investors in People was really got designed to actually accredit people who, who were doing that job. And, and we, we lapped it up. We, we actually had a, um, a, 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 some fantastic programs that actually I, I championed 
and, and it was a lot of fun. And it was during that time that we were trying to, well, every, in fact, it was the fad, the book that everybody was reading at the time was The Goal by Ellie Goldratt. Mm, yeah. And so everybody in Courtauld's, you know, the industrial bit, we were in the industrial, we were industrial textiles, but we weren't in the textiles. Bit. We were, we were advanced materials. Everybody read the, read the goal. And I loved, I loved it, but it wasn't, it didn't really, I mean, we wanted to actually make it work. And the, the concept of the goal for those of you who haven't read it is it's the, the idea of bottlenecks, the theory of constraints and the idea of, um, and that's what people remember. When people read the goal, they think, of, oh, it's all about bottlenecks and, and how you focus on the one constraint that's basically stopping the, stopping the organization flourishing. What they forget, actually, the goal has got a lot of other things in it as well. Um, they, for example, uh, Goldratt talks about this, this character called Jonah, and he's a, he's a Socratic leader. He basically asks questions rather than basically telling. He makes the person asking the, who wants the help to actually work out the answers for themselves. And one of the questions he asks is, what is the goal? And they were actually struggling with that. And the book, the whole book was about, what is the goal? And one of the things that comes across is that, although in this particular book, the, the goal was to make money, more money now and in the future. But it isn't the same goal for every organization. A not-for-profit will not necessarily have the same goal. But you can still ask that. And then say, what is the constraint to us not optimizing that? So the goal was very, very um, thought-provoking. And so I actually had the, the, the privilege of going to see Ellie and actually getting him to work with us in, in actually trying to apply this um, in, our, in our organization. He, had, he worked with a guy called Ode Cohen, who was, who was running the UK at the time. But I, I actually spent quite a lot of time with Ellie Goldratt. And... I think for any, any people who know anything about Ellie, spending a bit of time with Ellie Goldratt is this ch cigar-chomping guy who's passionate. Actually, what he's really passionate about is he wanted to change the world, how the world thought. So he ended up running programs in the States for schools because he wanted school children to think clearly. So he was a nuclear, I think he was a nuclear physicist as a training. So he had a very logical thought pattern. And it was about cause and effect. And so you think about problem solving and all that. He really had this idea that what is the root cause? Stop dealing with all the symptoms. Actually spend time to really understand what the root cause is. And um, he was inspiring. Whether it worked for my, there were other, other things going on with my business, including a recession. Um, and it's fine having this, this theory. Uh, so in the end, I, uh, we had to actually, we sold the business that I was running. Well, I ended up with Cortels. But I, I think some of the influence that Goldrap um, had on me, I mean, re remains to this day. And it's, uh, I mean, it's a book that hasn't been written. A lot of people haven't read The Goal recently. I mean, it is the one book that I would recommend anybody, if they want to look at a system and actually optimize the system, they should read. Well, especially with that insight you provided there, John, that really triggered me. I've read The Goal multiple times. But you bring in that part of clearly understanding the goal and getting everyone aligned to the goal. But then also the concept you, you mentioned of Jonah with his coaching approach mm. and his mm. leadership approach. And well, he, he followed it up with what he called the Jonah program. And, and you actually meet people, I haven't met any, anybody recently, who actually were trained to be a Jonah. He actually oh. developed a whole, whole course around the Jonah concept, um, which a lot of people don't know about. They just think about him as being the author of the goal. 
that would have been a good course and and bringing in coaching early on in the piece you know developing that leader as coach so john where where to from there what you had this background in textiles and english textiles 150 year old english textiles company in the 90s that is something else because there weren't many textiles left by that time, were there? At all? No, no, there weren't. And when we, we were actually very lucky. I mean, the, 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 the company that Cortos had bought was a, guy, a company called Fothergill and Harvey. And they were very, the leaders of Fothergill and Harvey were very inspirational. They moved away from garment based textiles to industrial textiles. So we wove things like Kevlar and carbon fiber. Which, which needed a completely different approach rather than just making them as far, running the, the, the looms as fast as possible. So all that industry moved offshore. So it moved to lower cost economies because it was still very labor intensive. But we had that little niche and even that was beginning to move offshore. But uh, it, it was, we sold the business and I ended up with Cordell's in sort of a much more strategic marketing and I learned about supply chains because one of the things that Cordell's had there was... Um, they, they, one of the things they, in fact, one of the original chemical businesses they had was man-made fibers. So they pioneered ac- acrylic manufacture and and the the sort of dyeing of acrylics in the in when they were making it. So you didn't have the process of dyeing uh, fibers in a separate dye process. So it was very environmentally effective. It was all contained in one thing. But they also invented which, which I got involved with with a uh, with, with a a product called Tencel, which was, um, I think it was after nylon, it was the first man-made fiber that had been developed for something like 30 years. And it behaved very much like a cotton. And, you know, that doesn't, the technical aspects didn't matter. But I was brought in to actually say, well, how are we actually going to develop the pull-through of this product all the way through to the final product, which is a garment? And when you actually study that um, supply chain, the textile supply chain is still one of the most amazing supply chains in the world because you buy raw chemicals, you process it in the plants that we had in the UK, and then you sell it to somebody who might, it's a, it's a fiber, it then gets spun. From spinning, it then can get processed and it might get uh, dyed or it might get made into a fabric and then the fabric then might get dyed and then it gets made into a, into, into a garment, which might then be basically sold to a wholesaler and then it gets sold to a retailer. And the whole process is driven by uh, a retail or a fashion house saying, we want this program. We want this, um, this style, this garment in the shops in nine months time. And there's a, there's, a, there's a fashion show, it's, it's an industrial fashion show called Premier Vision in, in Paris, where all the fabrics were shown from around the world. And we suddenly realized that we were having, were having to manage the entire supply chain and nobody really had visibility of it. So what I learned from that is the importance of really understanding the whole supply chain and that the fact that we were selling a fiber for a certain price to a spinner didn't matter. Well, it did matter because they were squeezing us down on price. But the end product was firstly a fabric, because it draped and it was beautiful. And then it was made into a garment and it was a certain color. And then it was sold in the shops. And the added value all the way through that supply chain. And by the way, that was going from us to somewhere in Asia, to somewhere in the South Pacific for dyeing. And then it was going to a garment maker, maybe in Sri Lanka. And then it was going from there to a wholesaler 
in New York and then it was going to be sold on the West Coast. I mean, it was just unbelievable. And we tried to track it. And what we realized is we, we could track it, but it was just such a dynamic process. You had to work on the pull through. So we looked at things like uh, accreditation, branding, and we, used, we developed the Tensile brand to actually make sure that only people who had certain attributes could actually pull it through. So we were trying to manage a whole supply chain. So um, that was fascinating. Um, and, and I really understood the complexity of, of global supply chains from that. That's, um, that's one decent supply chain, and there, there is some waste in that supply chain. Uh, yeah, but and, and you just think about the transportation. It's a bit like you know wow. the, the the thousand kilometer hamburger that people talk about. I mean, it's um, you you just wonder at, at why uh, you know and the markup on each on each you know where everybody's taking their the clipping their ticket on the way, and could you could we influence the the um, the final price? No. So, but everybody wanted to have their little markup on the way. So we were squeezed at the bottom and yet we were creating all the difference in the, in, in the, in the way the garment hung. I mean, people still to this day who've actually experienced the tensile, they feel that they feel the fabric. It, it had a certain, certain feel to it. It wasn't the fiber. It was the processing of the fiber that had created that. We created the fabric and yet all our original marketing was selling a fiber to the, to the spinner. Actually, what we were trying to do was create a magical fabric. Um, anyway, um, that, that was a fascinating part of my career, but it was sort of, a, a, we, were, we were in a dying industry. Maybe that's the wrong word. Um, but it was, a, it was an industry that was moving away from um, Europe. Yeah. And, and so I recognized that I had to change tax. So I went into financial services and um, went to Cardiff, um, for a, 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 to work for a credit insurer. Now, credit insurance is a fascinating um, industry and not a lot of people know much about it because it's an insurance product, but it's actually based on insuring the supply chain. It's insuring when I give you, when I sell to you, I'm selling to you on credit and yet there's a risk that you won't pay me. Yeah. Just think about where we are now with COVID-19. Okay, JobKeeper and other other furlough support schemes. A lot of businesses are not going bust yet, but the credit insurers are watching very carefully because at some point, some of these businesses are not going to survive. And their customers, their policyholders, basically hold insurance. So uh, I was recruited because I understood the customer, not because I knew anything about insurance. In fact, one of the benefits was I, they didn't want me to know anything about insurance. They wanted me to ask those questions. Um, but it was all about that supply chain and the idea of not only do you have material flows, but you also have money flows coming back. Oh, wow. So you ended up in finance after all, John. Engineering, manufacturing, financial services. And, and, the, and, the, and really that, back to your original question of what, what made me really understand what enterprise excellence was about was when I moved into financial services. Because, because credit insurance is a... It's different from banks, but it's got some, some similarities. So when I went to the, the company I worked for was a company, it's ended up being called Atradius, which is one of the three largest credit insurers in the world. Um, but it was originally a company called NCM, Dutch owned. And the, um, like a lot of financial services companies, 
I've been brought up in this, in this, in this decentralized P&L, you own everything, and I moved into an organization which had a matrix structure. And when you have a matrix structure, the matrix is uh, one part of the organization looks after the customer, the client, and the other part of the organization looks after the risk. So you think about a bank, for example, and it's very similar to a credit insurer. Um, they make sure that the risk is not too high. They're looking after uh, making sure we're not going to lose money. Right. And they're separate organized, they're separate parts of the organization. And when I came in to head up the UK and the risk people didn't report to me, they reported back into head office. And so what it meant was I couldn't tell them what to do. And we were losing customers. We were losing clients because we weren't giving clients what they wanted. We'd made some assumptions about what our clients wanted. Um, we made assumptions that, um, they wanted to make sure they were absolutely safe that if they took a credit limit, they took they were sold on credit, that they wouldn't um, lose money. Absolutely right. But what we forgot was actually they wanted something before that. They wanted a decision. Actually, are these people worth selling to? Or do you know something that we don't that means actually they were actually quite happy to get no. What they didn't want was a delay of two weeks and then a maybe. So yeah. we were actually trying too hard in many cases to give them a yes, when actually they wanted a over 10 minutes, yes or no. If not, that's fine. We understand because we can move on and we can, we, and we didn't realize that. So we were dealing with one size fits all a customer segment that was one size. And yet we had multiple segments. There's an interesting story in there. I'm guessing John, cause you've joined a company where they had an assumption based on customers. And then somehow you discovered it. Do you mind explaining the story behind that? Well, I mean, it, it's, it's because they'd been, a, a, they actually had originally been a government department. And, and, and that's where most credit insurers had come from, which was helping exporters export to these slightly strange countries that you, you didn't know whether you were ever going to get paid. So there was one size fits all. It was, there is a risk, we'll look after you. And therefore the, the, the old approach was, was um, trust us, we know better. We'll, we'll do the best we can. And if we can't, if we really don't think it's worth doing, then we'll tell you. So that was historical. So it's the classic, in fact, you think about them, let's talk about a business model. We haven't talked about business models yet. You know, the Professor Carno model, where basically you have the concept of the basic needs of a customer and then the delighters at the other end. And over a period of time, the delighters become just accepted. They're required. They're just part of the, part of the yeah. service. And that's what was happening, I think, there was, was we just hadn't, hadn't seen how our clients were moving and changing in terms of their business models so that we actually had to adapt the slightly different offers for, for the way they, they, um, they needed to respond. So, so we, were losing, we were losing them because they didn't see the value in the product we were selling. Fantastic product. We were really good at managing risk, but they didn't care about the risk. They wanted an answer. Mm -hmm. So we needed to be better at giving them answers rather than actually just making sure the risk was managed. And that's in hindsight, but I actually, and this is leads to where I'm, what I do now for, for a lot of my living, I joined a, a, a CEO peer group called Tech. It was called Tech then, it's now changed in the UK uh, to Vistage in the UK and, 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 and the US. And that's a, it's a bunch of uh, CEOs who meet regularly and they get speakers. And I got a speaker, a guy called Dale Williams, who works with a guy you and I know, Professor Peter Hines, uh, and he was he was MD of the business in the UK at that time. And he talked about 
lean thinking. You know, he just talked about the book and all that sort of stuff. And I was listening to him talk about this. And of course, most of us, even to this day, some, most people think it's something you apply to manufacturing, production, operations. And, I, and the more I heard him talk, I actually realized this is what I could do with my organization. Because what I, I had was the risk guys didn't see the end client. They thought they were doing the right thing. They had well the best of intentions. They didn't see the right. So our retention rate was going down to something like 75%, which for a hundred and something million pound turnover business, that's 25, 30 million um, you're losing every year in terms of, in terms of revenue. So uh, all you needed is to get five or 10% better retention. And that would be worth 10 million, 15 million pounds to the bottom line straight away. Nothing, nothing, nothing more than that. And I suddenly realized that if we actually got both the client-focused team, which I was directly responsible for, and the risk people to talk about what the clients wanted, so get the voice of the customer understood, and then have a conversation about the process that we were going through to actually deliver value to the customer, and recognizing that we have more than one segment, um, maybe we will make some progress. I mean, and it worked beautifully. It worked absolutely beautifully because we actually got agreement that we should focus on the customer. We got agreement that actually we could do certain customers much more simply, which is, you, know, you and I know that would be the runners. And then we basically had some strangers. Uh, underwriting General Motors in um, 2000 and whatever was 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 a hairy proposition because it was going through a, some trouble so we you, you had to realize that certain credit risks they wanted to supply but they really wanted our help so there were different segments so um from that we basically put some changes in and our retention rate went from 75 to 85 percent 10 percent that's 10 million simple straight to the bottom line now of course, when we basically get parent company involved, they said, what is the UK doing? They're doing rather a lot of, they like this sort of stuff. So they adopted it. And the problem is they focused on the cost saving because we did save 10 full-time equivalents. Well, you know, being paid a hundred thousand pounds, a million, a million mm. a year, right? We didn't lose them. We basically focused on other things, but the continental European parent decided that this was actually a really good place to do some cost saving and it fell apart because people didn't buy into it because it was about cost saving role and basically delivering value to the customers. And guess what? Uh, turkeys don't vote for Christmas. People do not work on an improvement project if they're going to lose their job. Yeah. And so I learned so much from that, but we were one of the first, um, this was, when was it in 2001, two, so we were one of the first um, financial service businesses to apply lean, get results, and actually see how it worked. Yeah, that is at very early times for lean or agile or any of the improvement approaches to be going to finance. Mm. When, where did you take it from there, John? Like you, you've been involved in a lot, number of different improvement journeys from this stage and seen a lot of different learnings. Where did it go to, that started to bring it all together with what you're working on now? I moved to Australia. And, and so what I ended up doing was working with um, slightly smaller businesses and learning and, and really looking at influences apart from the original, you know, apart from people like Peter and others, and just looking at a number of different 
writers and thought leaders at the time. And, and a lot of them were saying the same thing. If you, t if you actually look at what Jim Collins is talking about, there's an awful lot that he talks about in his books, Good to Great, which you could certainly see is an enterprise excellence. A lot of enterprise excellence is there. I mean, less, I, I think more, more that than the, um, the, you know, the In Search of Excellence book that was there. And Tom Peters is great, but I actually think Jim really, really got to the bottom of, I th and I think it focused on leadership. And the one thing that I didn't do particularly well when I was in my credit insurance role is I didn't, I mean, I did, a, I did an okay job, but I did not realize the importance of my role mm. as the leader. I mean, I did it, but I did it without knowing the importance of it. And, and, and I think the one thing you, when you read some of these, and Pat Lencioni is another one I would, I would certainly say, the importance of leadership, and Peter Hines did a lot of research on this in terms of, in terms of how you actually get sustainable excellence. Uh, and you and I worked with Chris Butterworth, and he, he, did, he, he led a project where it was very clear that the leadership made all the difference. So, so I think, um, and we discussed this, you know, how we might talk about in this podcast, the importance of leadership. I think I discovered the importance of leadership quite late on in my journey. And I think a lot of people do because they focus on let's do lean on a production on the site. And they don't realize that you can do it in every function. And they don't realize you can do it at the senior management level. And they don't realize that actually the visibility and the processes that you do making decisions and making strategic decisions are a process. And therefore you can apply the same principles. What's the value? How are you delivering that value? and make sure that everything else we, don't, we, we do is taken out. That's waste. It's not actually helping us uh, go, go towards the goal. And, and therefore, I learned that in, in hindsight, having read quite a lot, that I missed that when I, was, when, I was, uh, when I was in Atreides. I got the team to do it, and it was great, and I sponsored it, but I didn't see myself as having to change my leadership style. And I've realized that now... I could have, we could have gone even further if I had and encouraged my senior executive team to do the same. But that requires a lot of work. Is John, this, is it this learning that you've had over the last period of time that has resulted in the joined up approach? Yeah, and what, yes. And, and the, I use the word joined up partly because it's, a, it's an Anglo-Saxon term that's used a lot and it's not being applied as, and I don't want it to, I don't want it to become like, it's not another word for lean. It's not another word for agile. It's not another word. It's actually trying to recognize that we have, if you take the basic joined up approach, it's recognizing you have multiple stakeholders. It's not just the customer. So lean tends to focus on delivering customer value. Uh, and if you deliver customer value and identify that, you then basically can, can, can create your business model, which is fully delivering value. But there are three fundamental stakeholders in any organization. One is um, the customer. The other is the owner. And that can be in a not-for-profit, that can be a sponsor, that can be a supporter, or it could be the government funding. It doesn't have to be, um, but it's a sponsor is, is, a, is a good way. They're basically, they have created the organization to deliver a purpose, right? And then the final um, stakeholder group is, is obviously uh, um, the people, the staff, in not-for-profits, volunteers, or subcontractors. It doesn't have to be employees, but they're the people who deliver the work. And if you think about those three mm. stakeholders, 
Um, each one of them have to be satisfied. You have to, if you're an employee, you have to be fulfilled in what you do. Otherwise you don't do it for very long. You might do it for money, but you're never going to get, you're never going to get hearts and minds unless you really do it because you're fulfilled. We've talked about customers quite a lot. So obviously the customer needs to actually create, recognize value. And, and, the, and the owner or the sponsor needs to get a return or an impact, whatever their desired impact, they have to get that. But there are outcomes. So customers get something, it's an outcome. Uh, owners or, or the sponsors get something, it's a profit or an impact. And, and employees get, um, get fulfillment and get, actually get a, it's job satisfaction. There are things that make that happen. One of which, and most probably best to start with, the proposition, what you actually sell in terms of the offer, which is effectively what the customer buys. But the customer does not just buy the product. As well as that, they're looking at your values, what you stand for. Increasingly, I think if you think about environmental awareness, uh, they're looking at, at what you stand for as well. So actually the brand that we're talking about often is a combination of the product and the values you have, right? So the customer's getting both of those. And you can't necessarily deliver what the customer is really wanting just by product alone. You've got to basically have a method of delivering that that actually is aligned to that customer's values. And that's why they buy. That's a really so, neat way of defining brand there, John. So, so that's an output. And you can design what you want, but you actually can't influence it except by getting the right product and offer. So you've got to be right in terms of delivering a, a really value, but also making sure that the values are not just personal values that you like, but they actually are aligned to what the customers are really wanting. If you take that to the next stage, if you just talk about employees, you can have, and I've seen organizations do it in Australia where they talk about values and they talk about behaviors and you want behaviors. But guess what? Behaviors don't come just from talking about values. Your business model, no. your, your compensation structure, your organization structure, back to what I've been talking about a lot today, is about the, you know, the, the decentralized structure, that has to be in place as well. So people behave and they are fulfilled by having not only values that they are aligned to, but also a business model that works for them. So you've got to basically design a business model and create the values that actually motivate employees to work for you. And guess what? To finish the circle, for, 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 for the owners, um, you can have a great product, but if you haven't got a business model that actually delivers that great product, that's almost the principles of lean, you're never going to make money, right? Or you're never going to deliver the impact that you want to. So it's this idea you've got the three stakeholders, but those are, they get outputs. The inputs are business model, proposition, and values. And that's where organizations have to really be clear about what they're actually trying to achieve. And that's where people like Jim Collins, Pat Lencioni with his book, The Advantage, um, are really powerful. Because the idea is that if you change any one aspect of those, of the brand, the impact, the, the behaviors, if you change anything, it affects something else. So don't kid yourself, you can change that bit of the organization without it having a knock-on effect. You change your product, You've got to change your business model. You change your business model, you inevitably change what the customer sees. You actually change how you basically position your values. Guess what? The customers see the difference. The employees see the difference. So anything you change has an impact on those stakeholders. That's the concept of joined up. It's a bit academic, but the actual practicality is you just focus on that and ask, what's the purpose of this and what's the impact? Simple questions. In the end, it's about simple questions. I really like, John, the way that you've brought those three elements of 
the owners, the people, and the customers together. And then also brought the more in-depth approach to each, where it's like the brand with the customer, with the people, it's about the culture, and it's also about the systems around them that are driving their behavior. And then the owners, it's about having the business model that's actually relevant and going to achieve great outcomes. It's really neat connecting it all. And it's a simple way. Like it is a detailed model, but when you take it back to the three elements, you can remember it quite easily. Um, McKinsey developed the seven S's, the seven S's change model, which is great. Can you remember the seven S's? No. I can't. They're systems and I, I really can't remember them because they're not linked to each other. I mean, they're all... They're not far away from what I've got with those sort of six, six areas, but they're not linked. And, and I think one of the things you want is something you can remember. Back, back to my engineering days, where the first principles are what you go from, and from that you can build up something, rather than basically remember the whole bloody thing in its in entirety. Uh, I mean, you know, th- th- this is a model for, you can say, what are, where are we now? Where do we want to be? And guess what? You've got six dimensions of change. And some of them are really already there maybe, and others will be really important. It's a neat, neat way to measure and plan where you're at, where you're strong and where you're weak. Mm. And John, I, have you got an example? You don't need to name names, but have you got an example of an organization where you've seen some strengths in some areas and maybe some weaknesses in another and the impacts that that's had? Uh... I'll, well, let's start with the almost the easier side, which is I've worked recently with quite a few uh, community service organisations, social ventures, which is which is very fulfilling. But you look at what they say about themselves. You look at most websites; they're very strong on mission. They say a lot about their values, and then you look at how the organisation actually operates. And they're not linked. And the one thing they're not really clear about, and I've got a client right now uh, who I think is a fantastic organization, but they really struggle to basically name and, and describe their three-year objective. Yeah. Why? Because it creates an accountability. It actually is saying, well, we, we could be wrong. Things could change. You know, we, we want to keep on mission. But, you know... There's no sense of urgency if you don't have a very clear objective. So one of the things that you often see is really well-intentioned organizations actually thinking that being, being light on their feet and not pinning themselves to what they're going to achieve in three years. And I'm not saying it should be financial. I mean, I'm not saying that. Lencioni has a really good model called the thematic goal, which I've encouraged a lot of my clients to use, which is actually saying, describe it. In fact, both Lencioni and Collins both talk about objectives should be describable first rather than getting straight into the measures. And I think that's really important. So often a lot of people say, we're going to be the leading expert in whatever. Well, what does that really mean? Tell me what that looks like. Well, actually, are you going to reach out to every single client in the, in, 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 in the territory or is it going to be a small percentage? What does it mean? And so the more precise they can be about that. The more you can say, well, what do you have to do to get there? If you don't have that, if you don't have that clear objective, then all roads lead to Rome. And they're doing fine and, you know, everybody's happy and the board's happy. But are they basically um, leaving 
Are they unfulfilled? Are they not really basically achieving everything they could do? How are they attracting really good talent? Because good talent doesn't basically want to go to just a well-meaning organization. They want to achieve something. They want to actually see some impact uh, at the end. So that's the, the flip side. I have, maybe I self-select a little bit. I don't know many organizations that have hard numbers, but you, there are plenty of, plenty of them who aren't my clients, um, and I won't name names, where financial objectives rule and um, there's no soul. So one of the things, in fact, the thing on the wall behind me is, is, is this concept of kogorazashi, which is this idea of it's in, two, it's in two halves. The bottom half is heart and mind. It's sort of earth. It's grounded. It's, it's, Jim Collins would call it based on the brutal facts. Don't kid yourself. You are somewhere you aren't. You've got to be there. But the top is the, the virtual warrior. It's the samurai. It's action. And if you basically don't have that top, then it's great. But actually, where are you going? So you have to have both. And I think Join Up helps you do that. Oh, definitely. It covers all bases, John. It really sounds like it covers it completely and simply. Mm. So, John, and have you seen the flip side where you've worked with an organisation where they do have a clear vision and objectives and measures to go with it, but they may be lacking on the heart and soul pair? Yeah, um, I think I think we you see that a, a bit in Australian businesses because they think that's soft and fluffy stuff. Yeah, um, and and a few people duck the values because or they come up with the 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 Enron values of you know trust and integrity and all the stuff, uh, and and I, and I think that's where you know people like you and I are really important because you actually say guys it's okay. This isn't about soft and fluffy, but you do need a, a third party facilitator to help them do that, I think, because um, in the end, it's about behaviors. Because people get caught up, oh, values, principles, you know, the Shingo principles, are they? values are the principles, you know, uh, and, and uh, don't worry, what behaviors do you want to see? So it's actually getting to that. So it's, it's, it's this idea of picking the, the, the employee who really you would say would be a star, and you say, well, what are they doing? All right, what are they doing now? What values would you describe? So it's actually getting to the process where do you want people to behave like that guy or that woman? Yes. Well, then do something about it, actually. So there's plenty of organizations that shy away from it because they say, are there more important things to do than that? So I see lots of operational plans, lots of KPIs. Um, and um, they don't talk about actually you know the things that actually matter longer term is are you a team player are you actually helping the greater good you see that often in say you would see this in sales teams where you have the super super sales guy yeah. who's, who's hitting the targets and um but they're not they're not a team player they're not helping somebody who's perfectly competent just needs a little bit of help a little bit of just encouragement at the right time from somebody who actually knows what they're doing and yet they're not basically, they don't think that's important because nobody's ever talked to them about it. Mm. It's that key people element of the joined up, you know, triangle. John, you, you've worked with a lot of companies and inspired a lot of people along the way. Who are some people that inspired you? I should, I should be able to answer that more easily. I mean, I've, I've mentioned a few. So the people I have already mentioned, I think, I think, um, the most impressive 
leader, and it's a large organization, so maybe it's, it's uh, I would say the person who embodies everything we've talked about today more than any, anybody else is Alan Mulally, uh, who, um, for those of who, who, those who don't know Alan, uh, he moved from basically being the guy who ran the commercial part of Boeing when it went through the 9-11 crisis. So people forget when they, and he moved to Ford and he was headhunted and brought into Ford. And there's a book, American Icon, there's a great book written about him. So I, I was lucky enough to go to Dallas last year, last year, and Pat Lencioni was running a conference and he had Alan Mulally on the stage with him. And it was just wonderful to see these two guys just having a conversation. And, and uh, at the end of it, I mean, Mulally talked about joyful accountability. He talked about, we love you still, but maybe you just don't fit in this organization. Lots of all this wonderful stuff about, you know, don't be embarrassed about accountability. It's about something that actually fulfills you if you do it and all that sort of stuff. He really exemplifies what Jim Collins would call the level five leader in his humility. In fact, we had Ken Blanchard come up after these two guys and just make a few comments. And he said, the one thing that came across was, was Mulally's genuine humility. Really, really unassuming, but knew how to get the most out of people. So mm. that's, that's one without going through a long, long list. Um, uh, there, are, there are obviously line managers I've worked with that I've been very impressed by. The one characteristic about all of them is they give you your head. They give you the opportunity to actually make a difference rather than basically telling you what to do. Mm. That key empowerment element. Mm. And John, what are you what are you focused on now for the future? What's your vision going forward? Well, the short term and medium term. I mean, um, I'm, I'm, I'm look. You and I could spend a lot of time talking about politics, and we don't want to go there. But one of the things that really it, it comes almost back to the to the Ellie Goldratt philosophy of I want to teach people how to think. You do see such appalling decision making, and I would love to be able over the next 20 years to help people get better at their decision-making by being clear about their purpose and basically the implications, inquiring with the people who actually uh, I work with. And, 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 and I include uh, public servants and politicians in that because we sure as hell need some. Uh, the short, medium term, I think, with the, with the coming out the other side with COVID, it's about... The business, it's going to be about businesses uh, in, in, that are going to fall into two camps, the winners and the losers. There's not yeah. going to be much in between. There's not going to be people who are just going to muddle on through. There may be for a while. And I'm lucky enough to work with some, with some groups of CEOs who are really committed to being winners. And I think, I hope the Australian government and other governments around the world for that matter are about backing winners, not about keeping everybody afloat. Because if you keep everybody afloat, then, then you'll, never, you'll never move forward. So it's about backing winners. And I think winners can be described with, with some very clear characteristics. Firstly, the leader has got absolute belief. So Jim Collins talks about it in, in Good to Great, the Stockdale Paradox, this idea, be really focused on the brutal facts, but recognize that... Um, the long term will be fine, especially if we do the right things. So real, real belief, which obviously then has an impact on the executive team and a team within their organization. 
The second, which I think is really back to the joined up principle, is have a vision, but no, don't have a vision initially for your business. Have a vision for the whole infrastructure, for the whole ecosystem that you are a player in, and see how that's going to evolve. Because there's so much change going on, and COVID has basically driven a lot of change, accelerated a lot of change. It's have a vision for the future, for the industry. Then, with your executive team, decide what role are we going to play. Yeah. Right. That's a really clear distinction. A lot of people talk about vision for their business. That comes only when you're clear about what the vision for the industry is. Right. Back to the Michael Porter stuff. You know, be very clear about that, and then say what role do we play? Who do we partner with? How do we do this? You know, if we can't do it now, what resources do we need? The consequences are so a vision followed by opportunity for your specific organization. And, and that's where I feel I can help people really focus on that. But the final one is back to what you and I would call agility. Now, what we mean by that is we don't know how long this is going to go on for. And we may go into lockdown and there may be a Chinese trade war and there may be this and there may be that. What we have to have is a management team that is recognizing that you have to change direction. You have to pivot. And, and that is where the stuff that, uh, that Lencioni talks about a lot, which is you have the rhythms and the rhythm is such that you always can be in flow. So leadership flow is about talking about the right things at the right time with the right people taking ownership. And you can basically be going through absolutely smooth sailing doing that. Or if you have a crisis, you can still have the same principle. And if you're a leader, you can, you can be confident with your team going through a crisis, or you can be confident with your team when you're basically motoring on the other side. So I think creating that framework with a concept of where you're really going, I think is, I think there's massive opportunity. John, we've delved a bit, a bit into that vision and purpose piece and that insight you said about knowing it for your industry or your market, and then coming back to your business. That's very powerful. Do you mind explaining the right conversations with the right people at the right time. What does that look like? What's an example of that being done well? Well, the, the, the most important thing to emphasize there is when we talk about leadership, a leader, a leader, a CEO, a business leader needs to be responsible for the decisions in the organization. That doesn't mean their decisions, right? Some of them may be their decisions, but it's about wherever the decisions are made, they are responsible for being proactive in those decisions being made. So what that creates is whether you have the sort of an OGSM, um, uh, objectives, goals, strategies, and measures type structure, whatever you have, you have to have a rhythm at the top team and then a cascade from the top team to the next team down and from the next team down all the way down to the individuals. And that's got to basically feed up and down. And I've actually got some members who are beginning to do that. They've actually done it in a year. It doesn't take, it doesn't take a month. It takes longer because it's about habits. But they've actually done it. And picking up on what you've got on your screen behind you with visual boards and all that sort of stuff. It's this idea that you're not basically having a meeting to tell people about the status. The status is known. It's about what are the issues and what decisions do we have to make and making sure that actually whatever meeting, and Pat Lencioni talks about, you know, death by meetings. It's not about, meetings are not bad, 
but you've got to talk about the right things in the right meeting, right? But what decisions are we going to make in that meeting and who's empowered to basically action them? So it's having a structure which basically then allows you to quickly get to the top. So Malali, for example, um, he had this business strategy review model. And during the crisis, when all the, all the motor cars were going, all the, all the automobile, automobile companies were going through their crisis, that meeting for the global executive team was meeting almost daily and certainly weekly. And that was, that wasn't a long meeting, but it was actually making sure that everybody knew what was going on and they were making the decisions that were relevant to them. So that's the sort of model we're talking about. And there are some great models out there. I would recommend anybody, um, before they go to my website, go to Pat Lencioni's, the Table Group website's got some fantastic material. Um, and it is about rhythms. Uh, Vern Harnish, Scaling Up, Gino um, uh, you know Whitman, the EOS model is very good for smaller businesses in particular. And I like the simplicity of that one. Uh, the one thing about all of these is you don't talk about too much. You talk about the things that need to be talked about. You know how to, you know what the priorities are. You don't decide as the leader alone what the priorities are. You make sure others actually can have a say in that as well. And um, you focus. You focus on the top two or three things whenever you're having that conversation. You're not trying to spread the list too lo too long, or, or because you can only focus on so many things. Wow, that's that's impressive. So it's a it's a process of getting that vision and those key objectives and measures from the top level right down to the front line and aligning them and then having a rhythm of action-oriented meetings to execute on it and make it happen. Get moving forward rather than the traditional past-looking what happened last month type of meeting. Uh, aren't you amazed at how many people, how many boards, how many executive teams meet and look at the financials? Yeah. I mean, it's rear view mirror stuff. What yeah. the hell are they? I mean, but you know, we, right now we're 2020. I would guess that 90% of the organizations worldwide would still be doing that. And what's yeah. more, they're actually looking at year to date progress. So at the end of, at the end of June, the world changes and it all starts again. Right. Yeah. How crazy can people, uh, and how, how much influence can you, do you have to change last month's figures? Yeah, and, and, and you know, that comes back to Goldratt. He, I mean, when he talked about throughput, um, he really did have a go. This was, how long ago? Nearly 20, 25 years ago now. He basically had a real go at the accounting profession, and they still haven't changed. Wow. It's I didn't realize that he had a go at that also. Oh, no, he did in the book, the didn't throughput. he? He had a yeah, number of elements in there. And, because it was all about inventory is, is regarded as an asset. Yes, I remember now. <laughs> and, and therefore, a lot of behaviors in plants is building, if you, build, if you build more inventory, that basically is recognized as profit. Yeah, produce more inventory. Produce more inventory. John, keen to know, what have you learned recently that you didn't know before? I think what we've gone through with the the COVID-19 crisis is really interesting. And I think a lot of business leaders maybe have reflected. Uh, when this crisis started, the first reaction was, we can see this through, you know, we'll plow through uh, this, you know, we've, we've been there before, we've done it before. 
And I think it, it doesn't matter how much you have been successful in your leadership style in the past, there are some occasions where you just have to stop and say, what assumptions have changed? And, and we just assumed, I, I think, certain things. I just assumed we'd, we'd muscle on and basically, yeah, it's not just, just a flu, it's just this, you know, and we would, we, would, we would just, you know, we'd just motor on through. And sometimes you just have to realize some of our assumptions are wrong. So I think I've learned, I knew it already. It's nothing, nothing we don't know, but it's actually, has it really sunk in? Is just question. I've had to really question my own leadership because I lead teams, I lead, I lead groups. And some of the things that I wanted to basically do just weren't going to work. Um, so uh, we all have to unlearn things. Yeah, that's a neat statement. It's part of learning more, isn't it? And learning things to then learn more. Yeah. It, and I, I, I think for a period in my career, I, I didn't think I was much of a learner. I thought, you know, Harvard MBA, done it all that. And I suddenly realized you, you, it's not as if when you read a business book or you see a podcast or listen to this or something like that, you're necessarily going to get any new information, but you just get a different perspective. Uh, and, uh, and I think we're, we're, we're at a stage where things are happening so fast, faster and faster, that you have to basically look at other people's perspectives more. You have to be much more. It isn't about coaching as such. It's just listening for the, for the sake of listening. Um, we talked recently with um, a group of tech chairs about being more curious, which, which, is, which is actually a value associated with the listening, but it's not the listening itself. It's actually having a mindset. Um, because you're trying to understand what's going on and why, why is somebody thinking that way? And maybe they're thinking in a different way to you. Yeah. Be able to see something from a different angle. Well, well, John, thank you so much for all the knowledge and insight. And thank you for spending the time to help us to create a better future moving forward. And I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, John. Well, thank you for the opportunity, Brad. The key takeaways from this episode for me were clearly understanding who your customers are, what they value, but also their emotional feelings and intelligence. Have a clear vision for your industry, your business, and plan your strategic direction with these in mind. Lead culture with your employees. Engage your employees on the change journey. Help them develop their own vision and empower them to set their individual strategic direction. This was a really neat model that helps us gain clarity on the key aspects of a business we need to join up customers, employees, and owners.